0: Putting your book over here. Just so you know. All right. Good morning once again, ladies and gentlemen. It is good to see you all here this morning in the house of the Lord. Well, let us do as we are now doing every Sunday and read about, you know, this is just one verse, actually two verses, I take it back on the value of God's word. And we, as Christians, are people of the book. And so read with me if you will. All scripture is inspired by God and beneficial for teaching, for rebuke, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man or woman of God may be fully capable, equipped for every good work. And this is one of the reasons why we spend Sunday morning in the Word of God. And I hope, for most of you, more often than that. Well, today we are in probably one of the most central passages of Scripture for the the Christian believer. It's about a very unusual birth. Can you imagine what that might be? The last time I was up here preaching, I was in the first chapter of Matthew, and we were speaking from Joseph's perspective. And now, as I said before, we are doing the prequel to that. We're backing up a few months, and we're seeing it from Mary's perspective. So, join me if you will, you may read aloud with me as we go, or you may simply follow on. Unusual birth stories. This is certainly unusual. Unique, even. Jesus' birth foretold. Now, who is foretelling of this birth? Well, you'll see. But you know, I want to clear something up. The Catholic Church has a doctrine called the Immaculate Conception. And for those who are not familiar with Catholic doctrine, even some, I believe, Eastern Orthodox Church also shares this doctrine of Immaculate Conception. For those of us not familiar with it, we think when we hear Immaculate Conception, we think of the virgin birth of Christ. But they are different doctrines. The Catholic Doctrine of the Immaculate Conception actually came about in the 1850s. Did you know that? (laughs) came about in the 1850s. Um, I think I understand how they came to it, but I'm just here to tell you that it's not in the Bible. And so I don't want you to think that this is the same thing as the Catholic doctrine of Immaculate Conception and I want to direct you and I'll direct you again perhaps later to a website called gutquestions.org that gutquestions.org if you type in the search perimeter Immaculate Conception you will get a very good summary of what it's about and that's all I'm going to share with that this morning because the Immaculate Conception we are talking about is the biblical version and not the Catholic Church doctrine, you understand? Okay, that being said, I wanna put that right out of the way because that's not the core of today's message. Today is about the holiest we can get. Read with me if you will. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man Whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. It is absolutely crystal clear by the reading of Scripture that Mary was a virgin. There are those who claim that she was not, they are heretics. Now, I don't want to be overly harsh, but that's the truth. And when I wrap up this message, I want you to know this wonderful, fantastic, true story that we are about to read is absolutely miraculous, holy, magnificent, majestic, and I hope that you can bask in it for what it is. The glory of God is so on display in this passage. I Well, you'll see. You will see. Now, <laughs> we've already seen, right off the bat in the first verse, in the sixth month. The sixth month of what? Well, if you back up in this chapter, the angel Gabriel appears twice. He appeared about six months prior to this appearance, to who? Does anybody remember? Zechariah. He was in the Holy of Holies, and the angel Gabriel appeared to him then. And because he doubted, he was left unable to speak until John the Baptist, his son, was born. They were very, very old, too old to be able to have children, And John the Baptist, it was said, would be the forerunner of the Messiah. Well, God can do all things that he decides to do, and we'll see that as well. But Gabriel, who is this Gabriel? Well, there are some traditions that speak of the angel Gabriel as being an archangel, The Bible does not actually use the term archangel, but I can understand where some people would come to that conclusion. So this major character, the uh, the Gabriel, who said when he spoke to Zechariah, he is an angel who stands in the very presence of God. And he is used and mentioned in the Bible not that many times, In the Old Testament, he is in Daniel chapter 8, he is in Daniel chapter 9, and Daniel chapter 10. But primarily he is noticeable here in Luke chapter 1. And he says, he was sent from God. Now he comes to speak to who? The Virgin Mary. Nazareth. You know that the so-called the city of Nazareth. You know, there's not a, not a very good word to mention that Nazareth was not a city. It was a tiny little village. It was a little nothing. There is nothing in Scripture or anything in, anywhere else about Nazareth. So here is this little, hardly heard of little town. You remember in John chapter 1, verse 46, where Nathaniel, uh, said to his said to Philip, can anything good come from Nazareth? Nazareth was, uh, I believe it was a military outpost, a Roman army outpost. And uh, it was uh, way up north in the region of Galilee. It was nowhere near the center of the religious world. I shouldn't say nowhere near. It was relatively near compared to the rest of the world, but it was not at the heart of it. These were sort of country bumpkins out of the big, they were away from the, the big city of Jerusalem. The virgin betrothed a man, was betrothed to a man named Joseph of the descendants of David. What does that mean? He was of the house of David. I believe Jesus, when asked in the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 22, from whom, from what they would, I can't remember the exact quote, uh, would the Messiah come? What family would the, would the Messiah come? And they said, from the house of David. Well, here you have it. From the house of David. Joseph, the house of David, the adoptive father of Jesus. And the virgin's name was Mary. There were so many Marys <laughs> in the New Testament, in the Gospels. You kind of all have to have a little guide to figure out, because Mary was such a common name. Now, in the Hebrew, it was Miriam, Miriam, uh, Hebrew and Greek. Very, very common, Miriam. Who else was a Miriam in the Old Testament? You remember, there you go. Very, very prominent. Let's move right along. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you but she was very perplexed at this statement and was pondering what kind of greeting this was. Now, I have spoken before of one way of meditating on scripture is to put yourself in the shoes. Imagine yourself in this place. And in this particular case, I want you to imagine yourself as being Mary. You are a young teenage girl in a Little town in Nazareth. I'm sorry to say that females were not in this society the central focus. They were kind of, sort of, second-class citizens. I ain't saying it's right, folks. I'm just saying that's the way it was, okay? It's just the way it was. So, she must be wondering how is it possible I can imagine Mary sort of looking behind her like, who's he talking to? She's probably, nobody really knows the exact age, but Mary is probably about 13 or 14 years of age. She might be as old as 17, but you see, it was very common to be betrothed in those days as soon as a female, for the females, would become betrothed as soon as they had reached Puberty or shortly thereafter. For males, the typical marriage age or betrothal age was anywhere from typically 18 to 20 years of age, so they were a bit more mature. So, favored one. Now, this word virgin is the word parthenos, parthenos, which means a young unmarried, and normally indicates virginity, and Scripture is absolutely crystal clear that this is a virgin. Read with me if you will. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and give birth to a son, and you shall name him Jesus. How many times do we see angels say, fear not, do not be afraid. You have found favor. Again he says you have found favor. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and give birth to a son. There isn't much I have to explain to you about that, now is there? Does anybody have any questions? Let's move along. I want you to know, I want you to notice as we get and literally we're just about to get into what is called the Annunciation. Anybody ever heard that term, the Annunciation? Sort of a holy-sounding term. It's an announcement. It's Gabriel's announcement to Mary. Now, you'll give him the name Jesus. The Hebrew version of that was either Yahashua, Yeshua. We would say Joshua. We have a Joshua in our midst here. And it means, what? Does everybody remember? Yahweh saves. Yahweh saves. The Lord saves. Now let's get into the announcement. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. This is the angel Gabriel speaking, who stands in the presence of God. Imagine the enormity and the power of this announcement on this young teenage girl. Are you putting yourself in her place? How would you feel? What would you be thinking at this moment in her place as you're being told, you are about to become the mother of the Son of the Most High. Are you with me, people? Say amen. Now this term, the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God, these names are both from the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint. They are their names for God. The first is from El Yon. God Most High, and the second from Yahweh Elohim, Yahweh God. Now I want you to think about this. In this annunciation, you back up in my notes, Gabriel's announcement covers seven things in three verses. Seven major theological things in three verses. One, the virgin conception. Two, Christ's humanity. Three, his messiahship. Four, his greatness. Five, his deity, which we just covered. And what we are about to come to is his kingship and his eternal reign. And I want to show you that it comes straight out of the Old Testament. So, from 2 Samuel chapter 7. This is from the Davidic Covenant. Anybody ever heard of the Davidic Covenant? You can go to the 7th chapter of Samuel, Second Samuel. And it says, when and this is by the way, this is the prophet Nathan speaking to David. Read with me if you will. When your days are finished and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come from you And I will establish his kingdom. Now I am intentionally using Nazbi, which capitalizes the personal pronouns of deity. These personal pronouns are not capitalized. So this is not speaking of the Messiah in this verse. Who is it speaking of? Solomon. Verse 13 He shall build a house. For my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. That's the key word. That's the key word. He will, let me move it along. Verse 14, I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he does wrong, I will discipline him with a rod of men, and with strokes of sons of mankind." So this particular verse isn't speaking directly of the Messiah, isn't speaking directly of Jesus. Why? Because it's, well, with the NASB and other translations it's not uh, capitalized personal pronouns there, except the me Which is Nathaniel speaking, or uh, speaking, actually, Nathan, the prophet Nathan, speaking for God. Okay? So, again, this is speaking of Solomon. Solomon did a whole lot of wrong things, did he not? Solomon went south in a bad way. How the wisest man who ever lived, apart from Jesus Christ, could have done so is a mystery to me but I will not stand in judgment of him because I am not qualified. I've gone south myself at times in my life. Anyone else? Amen? <clears throat> so this verse, is, these are verses from the Davidic covenant. So it's speaking specifically that the Messiah is going to be given the throne of David. Everybody with me? Let's move it along. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Now we're back in Luke, verse 33, right? This verse epitomizes the covenant made to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, where David was promised that God would raise up his seed after him, who would have a father-son relationship with God, and who would reign forever on his throne this promise to david was taken up by the prophets and became the foundation for israel's hope for a coming messiah hence what i just read to you mentioned to you when jesus asked the pharisees in matthew chapter 22 from whose house would the messiah come now i mentioned this he will reign over the house of jacob forever what is the house of jacob the house of jacob Is the nation of Israel. Okay, it's another way of saying the nation of Israel. And his kingdom will have no end. Now notice here, his is capitalized. Now it is speaking of the kingdom of the divine son of God, the forever son of God. His kingdom will have no end. So, it says... Now we go back to 2 Samuel, the Davidic covenant again, and look at the second portion, or this vitally important to this passage portion, of the Davidic covenant. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. This is again the prophet Nathan speaking to King David, and he says to David, your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever your throne shall be established forever. Okay? Now, we go to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. Also, obviously in the Old Testament. Read with me if you will. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Every time I read that, it gives me goosebumps. Seriously. I don't get goosebumps on my bald... Yes, I do. I have goosebumps on my bald head right now. Wow. The majesty... The power of these words, the truth in this being foretold some 700 years in advance. Evidence, undeniable, powerful, persuasive evidence of the majesty of this holy child that we celebrate during this season. So many people. Love this, myself, you I'm sure included. Love this Christmas story of this innocent, perfect little child. The Christmas story draws on the hearts of believers and unbelievers alike. But what I want you to understand is who this person is. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh. This is God of very God, fully God, who became fully man. Why? Because we needed a Savior. Verse 7 of that same passage uh, in Isaiah There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. From then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. Can you feel the power of that? Almighty God. Just let that sink in. Let that sink in. Now, in Christ's first advent, the one we read about in the the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus took no throne, did he? So what does this imply? He's coming again. There was a first advent and there's a second advent. There is a second advent already written before the foundations of the world. And it was already in written into the Davidic covenant. It's already written in this prophecy. Are you ready for the second advent? If you think the first advent was magnificent, you ain't seen nothing yet. Ain't that right? That's a song from way back in my teenage years. Bachman Turner Overdrive. You ain't seen nothing yet. It has nothing to do with this. (laughs) Trust me, it has nothing to do with this. But nonetheless, seriously, if the... The power of the Christmas story, the power of the Christmas season grabs hold of you and motivates you and the rest of Christianity and the rest even of the unbelieving world to go out and spend billions and billions of dollars at Christmas time. I tell you, as powerful as that is, and as important as it is, and I'm going to get to how, why it's important and how important it is. The second advent will blow your mind. We've begun studying it, haven't we, in the book of Revelation. We have a Revelation Bible study that's on break right now, and we will be getting back into that after the holidays. Powerful stuff. Let's look in Daniel chapter 7. Gabriel showed up, remember I mentioned, back then as well, but not in this particular passage. Read with me if you will. And to him was given dominion, honor, and a kingdom, so that all the peoples, nations, and populations of all languages might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. With righteousness. And justice and peace, such as this world has never, ever known. The power of this prophecy. Now let's get back to Luke. But Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? Mary is not expressing doubt, she's just having curiosity. What is the means by which this will happen? Verse 35. The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. For that reason also, the Holy Child will be called the Son of God. The Holy Child. Well, the Holy Spirit. You know, the Gospel of Luke mentions the Holy Spirit. A whole lot. And of course, Dr. Luke also wrote the book of Acts, which we're going to be getting into very deeply in the new year. The Holy Spirit, the power of the Most High, will overshadow you. This overshadow. Anybody ever heard of the term, the Shekinah glory of God? The Shekinah glory of God. Make sure I'm pushing the right button. 2 Corinthians 5.21. Remember how I mentioned the holy child? How the verse mentions the holy child will be called the Son of God? The holy child. What does that mean? It's It's alluding to his sinlessness. Are you aware of that? The holy child, the Son of God, the same nature as God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin in our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The Son of God had to come in to humanity to become the second Adam. The first Adam sinned and put us in slavery to sin. The second Adam came, Jesus the Christ, and had to become human from birth to live and to die as a sinless sacrifice for us because that was the only way that our sins could be paid for. He had to be sinless without sin, knew no sin in order to become sin on our behalf on the cross, so that the wrath of God could be poured out upon him for us. All for the express purpose of bringing us back into communion with God Almighty. And it could be done no other way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes unto the Father but through me. Where does the Father reside? In heaven. You want to get to heaven, you've got to go through Jesus. Let's look at Hebrews chapter chapter 4, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things, just as we are, yet without sin. Who is this high priest? It is Jesus the Messiah. When he ascended to heaven, which we will read about later on, not today, but later on. He ascended to the right hand of the throne of God to be our high priest, to intercede for us. And he can only do that, excuse me, because he is without sin. And finally, 1 Peter 2 22, he who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. Speaking of Jesus. 1 John 3, 5. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. Have I been overly repetitive in driving home the point? If I have, I apologize. Let's get back to Luke, the focal passage, verse 36. And behold... Even your relative Elizabeth herself has conceived a son in her old age, and she who was called infertile is now in her sixth month. Hence the opening of this passage. Now, there's much I could go into into the lineage of Elizabeth and so forth. I'll leave that for you to check out as your homework assignment. But behold, your relative Elizabeth herself has conceived a son in her old age. Remember Abraham and Sarah in the Old Testament? And how they were how old? Does anybody remember? About a hundred. In that vicinity. And when they were told they were going to have a son, what did what did Sarah do? She laughed. She laughed. But she was given a son. Because with God, all things are possible. And he is making it evident again here. Verse 37. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold. This is Mary speaking now. This is not Gabriel. Before this was Gabriel. And now it's Mary saying, Behold. All right, let's pick it back up. Mary said, Behold the lord's bond servant may it be done to me according to your word and the angel departed from her all of these things have been covered in a conversation that may have taken 5 minutes 5 minutes powerful things can come in small packages and in brief little moments of time. This Annunciation is absolutely the heart of Christmas, is it not? Is this not the heart of Christmas? Mary's exemplary attitude of servanthood recalls that of Hannah, who when she was praying for a son in 1 Samuel, made a vow and said, Lord of armies, If you will indeed look on the affliction of your bondservant and remember me and not forget your bondservant, but will give your bondservant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and a razor shall never come on his head. This was a mark. This is an echo This is a characteristic, this is a mannerism that is repeatedly in the Old Testament and now with the Virgin Mary showing someone who is completely yielded and subservient to the will of God. Are you still putting yourself in Mary's shoes? Are you still thinking like Mary is thinking here? That whatever is God's will... Bring it on, Lord. Whatever you say, Lord, do you say that to the Lord each day? Let your will be done, like when Jesus himself also exemplified this before he went to the cross in the Garden of Gethsemane, as he prayed so fiercely that he sweat drops of blood. So intense were his emotions and he said, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. Is that what you're doing in your life? I have to ask myself the same question. I'm just like you are, I'm just a man. Okay, before I close up on this, I wanna drive home the point of how important the virgin birth is. You see, in the last days, and we are in the last days, the book of Revelation mentions two churches in the in chapter 1 of Revelation. You have the Philadelphian church, which is a true church, and you have the Laodicean church, which is a church in name only, essentially. And there is a whole lot of liberal churches out there, theologically liberal churches, who will try to tell you that the virgin birth isn't necessary. There are people on YouTube and all over the internet that will try to tell you, nah, it can't be true. Well, let me read a quote, a long quote, from Dr. Stephen Lawson. Now, I've changed a few of the words. It was kind of by accident, but you get the gist of it. This is how important this virgin birth is. This subject of abs- is of absolute importance to our Christian faith. The virgin birth is not incidental, it's fundamental. It is the very foundation upon which the cross is built. We are not saved by the virgin birth, but there would be no salvation without the virgin birth. Jesus had to come as he did in order to be what he was, in order to do what he did. Are you with me? Say amen. It was because of the virgin conception, which we're seeing here, and birth, that he, Jesus, was not born with a sin nature inherited from Adam because of the virgin birth. He was able to live a sinless, perfect life and to lay down that perfect and sinless life as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. To deny the virgin conception and birth is to deny the sinless humanity of Christ. It is to deny the perfect holiness of Christ. To deny the virgin birth is to deny the active obedience of Christ, the substitutionary death of Christ. The person who denies the virgin birth of Christ is a heretic and an apostate and an unbeliever. No true believer can deny the virgin birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. To deny the virgin birth of Christ is to deny the truth, the veracity of the holy preserved word of God that we call the Holy Bible. I hope I've been clear. The wonderful miraculous historical account which we have just read is absolutely true absolutely undeniable throughout the whole of Scripture whether prophesied from the Old Testament part of the Davidic covenant or in the New Testament as we're reading here you cannot deny it and still be a member or a citizen of the kingdom of God And so, let us worship mighty Counselor and almighty God, Jesus, the Son of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace, for your love, for your provision in Christ. We thank you. That before we loved you, while we were even your enemies, you loved us so much that you, your eternal Son, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit, formed a divine conspiracy, truly a divine conspiracy for this rescue plan. So elaborate, so magnificent for love for love and father we love you and we thank you in jesus name we pray amen